Welcome to Unlocking Science, where we explore how to talk about science and particularly science and trust. Through these conversations, we'll see how social media, cultural traditions, the way we vote and our very identities influence how we view science and the trust we place in it. This four-part series is brought to you by the International Science Council. I'm your host, Nick Ishmael Perkins, a journalist and researcher in the field of communication. So, how do we talk about trust? COVID-19 has been a bit of a wake-up call for some of us, including scientists. More than ever, a proliferation of information and debate is challenging traditional sources of truth, resulting in different interpretations, actions and beliefs forming around issues that science can address. Whether these issues are about managing our health, our environment or the way we consume, the stakes are high. So, we need to get serious about understanding how people are making meaning of scientific information and figure out how to engage all communities effectively. In this episode, we explore how uncertainty plays a role in the process of scientific discovery and why this is such a challenge for the way we need to talk about science. Welcome to Unlocking Science. Joining us across several time zones are two guests who work tirelessly in the field of science communication and research. Our first guest is Dr. Courtney Raj, a Washington, D.C.-based American journalist, author, and advocate for freedom of expression. She focuses on the intersection of media, technology, and human rights. Frequently in the media to discuss issues around press freedom and censorship on subjects from COVID-19 to the Arab Spring. Every time I speak to her, she has ever so slightly changed my view of the world like a good play. Welcome, Courtney. Thanks so much, Nick. And Dr. Felix Bass an associate professor based at Central University of Punjab, working with the Ministry of Education and part of the task force on COVID-19 in India. He's a science communicator known in India for his writing, outreach talks and YouTube videos encouraging critical thinking. I don't want to say you're big in India, but to be big in India is a big deal. It's a huge audience. Welcome, Felix. Thanks for having me here. Nick. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic has revealed a great deal about how science is perceived by various communities. And perhaps for this chat about science and uncertainty, we can start here with COVID-19. And Courtney, what does the story of mass wearing over the pandemic suggest to us about the challenges of communicating uncertainty? Thanks for that question, Nick. I think that's such a perfect example that illustrates the complexity involved in this situation where, you know, the science is evolving as we learn more about this unprecedented coronavirus. It's called the novel coronavirus for a reason. It means we don't really know a lot about how it works. And scientists are learning with all of the the new information that they're receiving and as the virus evolves. Early on, There was advice given by top medical scientists that masks did not need to be worn because they weren't effective in preventing the spread or transmission of the disease. And we knew at the same time that there was a shortage of masks, that they were concerned that frontline defenders, nurses, doctors, etc. wouldn't have access to personal protective equipment to keep themselves safe. So from the very outset, it felt to me like they're saying this so that we don't have a run on masks. But if you start from the very beginning of the pandemic, saying something that turns out not to be true, and also just doesn't really make sense on kind of the commonsensical face of it, it became very difficult for scientists and medical experts to then convey 
what they knew and to have that taken seriously. But by not being upfront about the complexity of the situation, giving the people the benefit of the doubt to be able to hold complex opinions and behave appropriately, you know, I think that uh, scientists and, and, and the medical profession kind of infantilized um, how they communicated with people. The problem is that because science is evolving and new information comes into play, this does not mix well with politics which very much has form of communication that holds people to whatever they have said, whenever they have said it. So you have these scientific communication conflicting with political communication. Yeah, no, this is actually a really important point. Felix, I want to know here a little bit from you about the situation in India. Tell me a little bit about how things played out. What were some of the key challenges that you were facing as a science communicator through the pandemic? Here in India as well, I've come across the same problems uh, again and again, you know, and especially the science communicator here, especially the academic science community, university professors talk in English. But India, you know, India has got a large number of languages, 22 official languages. Not much of the communication happens in uh, in our regional language. I think that is one of the biggest uh, uh, roadblocks in science communication, especially during the pandemic. The socioeconomically privileged class can perfectly understand and communicate in English, but only teeny tiny fraction of the Indian population uh, can understand uh, English, you know. And that has led to alienation because, you know, most of the terms connected with the COVID 19 uh, for example uh, all these jargons like a mask or sanitizer even rtpcr we don't really have any equivalent in indian languages so uh, that has led to this alienation and branding these concepts as western it's not our problem that is a big uh, c- cognitive bias actually uh, th- there is a name for it not invented here bias the mask is not invented here therefore it doesn't work I think that is the biggest learning curve that we had. And only workaround, I would say, is translation of these common jargons in consultation with linguists and implementing a policy on the translation of this so that the alienation will not be happening. I think this is a really um, important observation, Felix. There is an issue of language. But, of course, the misinformation that you're talking about is not unique to countries where you have several languages. I mean, the WHO has said it in the past that actually COVID is an infodemic as much as anything else, suggesting that actually somehow misinformation has been as devastating as the virus itself. I'd be curious to hear your reflections on this, Courtney. I think that was a powerful statement by the World Health Organization, and I I think it is accurate. If I look at how the communication has taken place throughout this pandemic and what we're facing in terms of, first of all, understanding the scale and scope of the pandemic and its origins and what that meant for the potential type of mitigation efforts and then the evolution of treatment and then the introduction of vaccines and the efforts to get vaccine mandates. Throughout that entire process, there has been misinformation, which is inaccurate information that's circulating, but not necessarily with any nefarious intent, but also disinformation that is specifically put out there by people um, who should know better. And I would include among these many world leaders all over the world, we have seen that the rise of populism over the past few years, coupled with the social media inflected communications infosphere, 
and the uh, pandemic, which is, again, an elite driven phenomenon where scientists play a really important role in figuring out what this is all about. Journalists play a very important role in reporting to the public and helping inform them. And political and other leaders play a really important role in building consensus and in, in communicating to the public about whether this is an individual issue or a collective issue. And so all of those things have combined, I think, during the pandemic to indeed create this infodemic where there is not uh, an understanding of how science works. And so as our understanding of the virus has evolved along with the fact that the virus has evolved, you know, various variants, etc. The best science brings in new facts, updates its understanding and makes different theories uh, accordingly. But that is, again, in perfect contrast to how political communication works. And we can't look at the infodemic or the pandemic outside of this broader framework of the fake news framing that has been weaponized against journalism and the press. So that when we got to the pandemic, there's a lack of trust in the media. And of course, this is all folded into a media ecosystem that is driven by social media platform algorithms. I think we're in a post-truth era where the idea that there is a truth is very um, up for debate. We're questioning so much about how things work and coupled with this lack of trust in, in elites and institutions has made it really hard to figure out how to address the infodemic aspect of this novel coronavirus pandemic. I take that point completely. Felix, so as I'm listening to what Courtney is saying here, I'm thinking we still think that science communicators are there to follow what they call the deficit model, that everybody else has a, a deficit of knowledge about what's really happening and that scientists are the experts. And that's a model that we have followed for the last, I don't know, 200 years, probably, when you think about Western civilization. Is this part of the problem with being able to communicate uncertainty? Yeah, I agree with you, Nick. Yes, so this is actually the problem. It doesn't come intuitively to the public. The science works with uncertainties and probabilities. If you communicate with uncertainties, which is actually the ideal situation, it can uh, sometimes backfire. The science actually is the process towards diminishing uncertainty, understanding the facts. So changing and updating the belief when the new evidence come, that is the Bayesian statistical inference. So that exactly is how the science works. That updating, of course, uh, intuitively we all do that. When the new uh, information comes, like for example in politics, when a politician uh, it turns out to be a corrupt, uh, you know, we, we no longer vote that person, but somehow that is missing. The scientific literacy is kind of completely missing in uh, today's uh, world. Thanks, Felix. I really want to capture this idea that you expressed about science being a process of the diminishment of uncertainty. And I think what that does is it changes the focus from absolute truth. And it suggests, again, you know, that you're doing something which is meant to be iterative. Sorry, Courtney, you're going to say something. I think there's so many points to follow up on here. I mean, the diminishment of 
uncertainty does not work in our communication environment. First of all, not how journalism works. And again, journalism is this mediated um, field through which so much of what the public knows about science has to occur, which means that it's not just about how scientists communicate, it's how scientists communicate to journalists, how journalists then communicate to the public and how that is, of course, received. And the problem is these days, it's not about what the facts are and what therefore the result or the outcome is. Um, so much of how people interpret science and, and other facts are through their identity. And so one of the things with the politicization of the pandemic is that now you have this link between your political identity, which is increasingly linked with your social uh, identity, with your economic identity. We see these differentiation between what people believe and how that is impacted by how they identify. So changing minds by introducing new forms of evidence is not going to be effective unless you address the fact that this is part of their identity. Yeah, no, and I and I, I hear this. Felix, you kind of touched on this earlier where you said, actually, you know, now we live in this world where there is discussion about what's called post-normal science. Can you talk a little bit about that and what post-normal science means? Because it's really, as I understand it, about understanding that science is now practiced where it has a lot of implications for social values and so on. Yes, Nick. So, uh, yeah, uh, it's highly contested, uh, to be honest, what science deals with. It's just my own take is that the science deals only with objective realities. There is an analogy, which again, it's not original. I came across that uh, is, it goes like this. So imagine a person standing uh, just to jump from the fifth floor of a tall building, uh, you know, and uh, the scientists can only tell you that there is a very high chance that you will die if you jump. But uh, it doesn't come under the purview of science that do not jump because that is a value system that is a virtue you know that is not actually the science another example would be the knife you know i like to use a very sharp knife for cutting my tomatoes but the same knife i can use it for uh, killing the persons too right it, de it depends on the value system the science don't have any answer so that value system the purview is different so as the science this doesn't actually have any overlap i think that is a very important takeaway from the covid 19 pandemic too yes Sure. So basically what we're saying is that now we live in this era of what they call post-normal science. And what happens is that you get science now that has implications on different value systems. But really, it's helpful to think that science and value systems are quite separate things. I can see Courtney is like, oh, my God, I cannot believe you just said that. I think that is what many scientists would like to say. But I think that the era we are in has fundamentally shifted that proposal because science is not neutral. The forms of knowledge that you create are not neutral and they have enormous implication for humanity, mankind, um, equality, etc. If you think about today's science, the technology revolution, yes, the science of, of what you can do with, you know, networked connectivity with, you know, the amazing advances in the telecommunications infrastructure we've created, great. But the fact that scientists did not think about what values were embedded in those systems have given rise to what Shoshana Zuboff calls the surveillance economy, which is fundamentally reshaping the economic value system 
that drives um, much of the economy. It's given rise to systems of, you know, so-called justice systems um, through health care, et cetera, in ways that have very negative repercussions for historically marginalized populations, oftentimes for women and just for all of humanity. Your so-called objective inquiry into an issue is not objective. It is laden with values, how you inquire into that, who is making the inquiries, what technologies get developed out of those. And I think that right now we're in an era where people are increasingly recognizing that. And you're in this kind of post-normal scientific era, post-truth era. So it's a really, really challenging time for scientists to communicate. One of the key takeaways is that we have to get away from this idea that, well, let's just give more evidence and facts and somehow that will change people's mind. If anything we've learned from this experience, it's that that form of communication, probably not going to be super effective. Courtney, thank you very much for taking us on to the last bit um, and uh, episode, which is where we say, so just answer the question. And it's an opportunity for both you and Felix to summarize any takeaways that you'd like. You have 60 seconds. Um, and I'm going to start, Felix, with you. So just answer the question. How do we talk about science and uncertainty? Yes, thanks, Nick. Uh, so uh, as per my understanding, there is no substitute for the quality education. So everyone should have a basic level of the scientific literacy that enables us to fight against the grave challenges of the 21st century, including the climate change or pollution or infectious diseases. My uh, number one suggestion to the budding science communicators is assume that uh, people are completely illiterate scientifically and uh, explain in plain, simple language, especially uh, the regional language science communication. I think it's really, really important. You know, that the, the COVID-19 is a fantastic opportunity for the science communicator because it's the first time that uh, a science story completely flooded our media uh, or almost entire year. The pandemic has taught us the importance that reliable sources and fact-checking. I think that spirit should continue forever. And Courtney? You have 60 seconds to answer the question. I think one of the things scientists and communicators can do is to communicate uncertainty and not convey certainty when there is not certainty. And I think if you look at the differences between how we're describing climate change and the pandemic, it's a good example because um, there were degrees of uncertainty raised in climate change that I think were unwarranted given the evidence, whereas there were levels of certainty created around the pandemic that were unwarranted because it's new and evolving and um, there was so much still left to be decided. And similarly, if people in power are conveying inaccurate information, it doesn't matter how great the science is. So we have to realize that communication involves identity and take that into account when we're describing uncertainty and think about doing this on a much more personal level as well as um, doing it more justice in the media and with journalists so that they can understand how to better report on things that are not black and white um, when there are so many levels of uncertainty. Thank you both for what has been a fundamental and fascinating conversation. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Nick, for having me here. Please join us for our next episode where the question is how to talk about science and identity. 
Courtney's already given us a little bit of a preview. We will be discussing why who you think you are has become so important in how you make sense of science and the world around us. To learn more about the series, please visit unlockingscienceseries.com. If you're in the UK, you can visit the International Science Council website to find out more about the project. This podcast was produced for the International Science Council by BBC Storyworks Commercial Productions. Thank you for joining us. Thank you.